0: Hey, good morning. Uh, It's good to be with you. Uh, If you're new with us, my name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors and want to personally welcome you and let you know we're really glad uh, that you're here this morning. If you are new, uh, during the month of December, we've been in kind of a mini-series walking through some passages in uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, looking at the promises that God has both made and kept in Jesus as a way to kind of stir our hearts up during this Advent season to rejoice in uh, the first coming of Jesus, how he came to earth to save us and was born as a human being and to uh, wait and hope and stir up our hope as we wait for his second coming when he will return again and complete this work uh, of making all things new. And so, Uh, We've been doing that through the book of Isaiah, and and over the past few weeks, we've seen the the promise of a son, the promise uh, of a king. And this morning, we're looking at the promise uh, of a kingdom, what Jesus' kingdom looks like. And so if you've got your Bible, you can go to Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to spend our time working all the way through Isaiah chapter 11, getting a picture of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, we're going to work through this text pretty quick. We'll take it in kind of three different sections, and then we'll spend some time kind of summing it up and drawing out uh, some implications from it, what, what the good news is uh, of Jesus' kingdom for us. And so let's look at this together, Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll start uh, in verse 1 and read the first five verses. Starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today. So, I'll go ahead and just ruin the surprise up front. Uh, This is a prophecy about Jesus. Uh, Hopefully, you knew that's where this was going, anyways, right? So, this is a prophecy about Jesus. And this chapter tells us some really uh, important things about him. Really, three big movements, three things that it shows us. It shows us that Jesus is a new David uh, who's bringing in a new creation by saving us through a new Exodus. Jesus is a new David who's bringing in a new creation by saving us through a new exodus. And if that's not clear, we're going to walk through all of that. But let's uh, begin by just spending our time thinking about that first one, what it means that Jesus is a new David. Uh, This passage begins by telling us that a shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse and that a branch shall bear uh, fruit from his roots. Uh, Jesse is King David's dad, but this prophecy is given long after King David is dead and gone. And so uh, this is saying that, that one of David's son, a sons, a son of David, is going to come and be this king and reign on the throne. Uh, because of their sin, the people of God have been ground down to a stump. They're going to go into exile as a judgment of God on their sin. But out of that judgment, salvation is going to come because this king is coming. And look at what it says about him. It says that when this king comes, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Other kings and prophets and priests and leaders in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit come upon them for a time to accomplish a task, but no one in the Old Testament up to this point of Isaiah's prophecy has had the Spirit of God rest and remain on them like this, because look at what this Spirit fills the king with. It says the Spirit is a spirit of wisdom and understanding, Jesus is filled with the spirit of wisdom because he is the wisdom of God in the flesh. Like, wisdom is not kind of common sense and street smarts. It's not a set of principles for living. It's not good advice. Wisdom is a person, it's Jesus. Uh, We've seen this in 1 Corinthians, that uh, Jesus is the key to reality, that shows us what God really values and what the world is really like, and that if we want to become wise, we only become wise as we follow Jesus and we live into the way of his cross, because the foolishness of his cross is wiser than all of the wisdom of men. As King Jesus rules with wisdom and understanding. He always knows what is best. He always knows what to do. And no one has to give him counsel uh, and advice and him be like, you know, I actually hadn't considered that before. I hadn't thought about that. But now that you say that, maybe I should think about running the world that way. No, he always knows what is best. And because the spirit that rests on him is also the spirit of counsel and might, he has the power to do what is best. And so it's not just that he knows what to do, it's that he has the power to carry it out. Uh, a lot of kings and rulers and leaders have had a lot of power and position, but, but not always a lot of wisdom. But I'm sure many of us either have right now or have had or know a boss who has power and position and influence but doesn't know how to use it or uses it in an evil way, in a way that's domineering uh, and bullying towards those uh, that they're over. Uh, there's no shortage of bad leaders in our world, but, but that's not Jesus. Jesus. I mean, this is what makes Jesus so amazing. Infinite power and infinite goodness meet in the person of Jesus. I mean, think about this. Jesus has all the power in the world. He is all powerful. But when we see Jesus interacting with people in the Gospels, how does he use that power? Does he use it to crush people? No, he uses it to heal lepers and exercise demons out of people who had been bound and possessed and heal paralytics and forgive people who had been caught in horrific sorts of sin. Jesus is the most powerful person in the universe, yet prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, people who had absolutely destroyed their lives through their sins, wanted to be around him. They were drawn like a magnet to him. They could not get enough of him. His presence was welcoming to them because they knew that he was going to use his great power not to condemn them and shun them, but to welcome them and forgive them. Jesus' power as the king is a kind and a wise and a loving power. Like This is the type of king that you want. And the spirit that rests on Jesus is also the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the text tells us because of this, that his delight is going to be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus, in his humanity, delighted to do the Father's will. And this puts him in stark contrast to every other human king. Because just think about every other human king in the Old Testament. What did they all do? They all failed because they lacked character. They didn't trust God. They didn't worship God. They didn't obey him. They didn't fear him. That means reverence him and give him weight. Instead, they went after other gods and led the other people into idolatry, into worship of other gods. But Jesus isn't like that. In his humanity, he models what it looks like to trust God. And look at how this plays out in verses 3 and 4. It says that because his delights in the fear of the Lord, he's not going to judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, but with righteousness and equity, he's going to judge for the poor and the meek of the earth. When, when Adam and Eve, back in Genesis, ate the fruit and plunged our world into sin, what does the text of Genesis say? It says, when they saw that the fruit looked good, that it looked desirable to make them wise... They they took of it and they ate of it and we have been doing the same thing ever since. We go after what looks and good looks and sounds good to us, even if it's going to lead us into sin. And that spills out into the way we lead and the way we handle situations. Like we make bad judgments. We make decisions off what looks and sounds good to us, even when it isn't wise. I mean, how many times have you done this? You've made a decision because you're like, yeah, that looks good, or that's going to go well, that sounds good, only to have it absolutely backfire on you, and you end up with eggs smeared all over your face. And all of us, right? But, But once again, not Jesus. This is saying that Jesus has all the facts, that he's not blinded by sinful desires and passions. He has no blind spots. There's nothing clouding his judgment, which means that his rule as the king is a rule where righteousness and justice reigns. And verse 5 tells us faithfulness and righteousness is just the clothes that he wears, that it's just who he is. He's not going to be misguided. He's not going to make foolish decisions. And when he comes, the poor and the meek, the people that get overlooked in our world, won't get overlooked when this king gets here. Once again, we judge by what looks and sounds good to us. And so the poor, the weak, the unimpressive in our world get overlooked and marginalized and mistreated because we look for what is successful and strong and impressive, but not so with Jesus, which means you and I have a great hope. There's room for us in Jesus' kingdom because his kingdom is a kingdom for the weak, for the unimpressive, for those who aren't a success, for the losers. text also tells us that he's going to root out evil with the breath of his mouth, that really all he's got to do is just blow a little bit of air on it and it's going to be destroyed And listen, I want to tell you, we all want this, because when you look at the evil in our world, when the weight of the darkness that we do to each other and the ways we harm each other and sin against each other begins to settle in on you, and you realize this is really good news, that Jesus is going to one day get evil out of his world so that it won't have such a place anymore, and this is who Jesus is. This is the type of king that we all want, and the good news is that it's the one that we really have in Jesus. In Matthew chapter one, the the opening page of the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus is the son of David, that he is this king that we have so long waited for. But but the text here in Isaiah doesn't just tell us that Jesus is the king. uh, It also tells us what his kingdom looks like. And, And what we see next in this text is that his kingdom looks like a new creation. Jesus is the new David who's bringing in a new creation. Let's see this together, verse 6 through verse 10. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, that's an incredible picture, is it not? Because this stuff is not happening right now in our world, is it? Uh, In our world, the wolf does not lie down with the lamb. It eats the lamb. And the leopard does not lie down with the goat. It preys on the goat. Uh, And the tiger king might, but but a little kid does not lead lions and calves together on a nature hike. Like, I cannot even get my dogs to obey me, but but here, a little child is going to be able to lead a lion around. And lions don't eat straw, they eat other animals. And if you were to look over and see your toddler playing with a cobra over its den, uh, you wouldn't just kind of acknowledge that and move on. You wouldn't be like, man, son, that's really cool. That's awesome that you're able to do that. No, you would rightly freak out and try to get them away from the snake because this sort of harmony, stuff like this, this just does not happen in our world. But something has so changed here that these things are happening. The nature of our world has been so transformed to the point that verse 9 says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain any longer. And this is the world that we all want, is it not? Because death and violence just don't exist here. Everything's in harmony. The curse that was laid on the world because of our sin is just gone. And this is new creation, a creation that's so renewed and transformed that it puts our current world full of sin and death to shame. This is what Jesus' kingdom looks like. And look again in verse 9 at the reason why all of this is going to come about. Halfway through the verse, it says, For, F-O-R, meaning uh, this is the reason that this new creation is going to come. For the knowledge of the Lord, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. This is what makes new creation, new creation, universal, worldwide knowledge of God. Because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, the world will be in harmony and the curse of our sin and death will be gone. And then verse 10 tells us, it says, in that day, the root of Jesse, which is Pretty interesting, right? Because in verse one, it called Jesus the shoot from the stump of Jesse, but now uh, it's saying that he's Jesse's root. And so how can he be both Jesse's root, like where Jesse comes from, uh, and a shoot, something that comes from Jesse? Well, this is prophesying about how Jesus is both God and man, that, that Jesus, in his divan- divinity as God, uh, he's the root from which all things come because he created everything, and he's the shoot because he was born as a human being to come be this king and win our world back to himself and set our world to right. And it says because that he's become a man and has come to be this king in this new creation, he will stand as a signal, as a banner to the nations. And the nations are going to flock to him. They're going to come to him to, to come to know him and, and spread. The, and this is how the knowledge of God is going to spread. And so this is Jesus' kingdom. This is what he's going to bring. So we see that Jesus is a new David bringing in a new creation. And then the text finally tells us that the way he's going to do that is by saving us through a new exodus. Look at verse 11 through the end of the chapter with me. It says in that day, the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathrus, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. And those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So Isaiah says In that day, God will again, a second time, stretch out his hand and bring back the remnant of his people who have been carried into exile in all these distant lands. Uh, The kingdom of Israel by this time had split into the northern and southern kingdoms, but here God is saying that they're going to lay their arms down against one another and be united as God's people again, that they won't be enslaved anymore. They will co-rule with God's promised king in God's kingdom. And, And look at what it says in verses 15 and 16, that God will wave his hand over the river and strike it into seven channels and will lead his people across in sandals. If they're going across in sandals, what are they walking on? Dry ground, right? Now, now where have we heard this before? Well, the good news is that if you don't know, the passage actually tells us. Look again at what it says in verse 16. He says, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites, they were enslaved to the Egyptians, but God brought them out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and as, they, as he brought them out, the Egyptian army pursued them, and so the Egyptian army was behind them. They couldn't turn back around, and they got to the Red Sea and couldn't go around the sea that was in front of them, and so what did God do? He split the sea into two walls on both sides so that they could walk through on dry ground, and he saved them from the Egyptians. And so you know what Isaiah is saying here? He's saying this act of salvation that God is going to work, it's going to be a new exodus, that this one is going to be like that one. God's people are going to go into exile. They're going to be taken captive by Babylon and Assyria as a judgment for their sin, But here the promise is that just like God brought his people out of Egypt and brought them into the land so that they could be God's people, living in God's place, living under God's rule, experiencing God's presence and blessing, God is going to act again and work a new exodus and save his people one more time out of exile. And look, this actually happens, and you can read about this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, a remnant of God's people really do come out from Babylon and Assyria and come back into the land. But what I want to show you is that that's not actually when this promise here in Isaiah 11 of a new exodus is actually fulfilled. Like this new exodus did not happen in Ezra and Nehemiah when the people came back from Assyria and Babylon. And here's how I know. Uh, these three things that we just read about that are promised in Isaiah 11, this new David, this new creation, and the new Exodus, they're not kind of like a buffet line where you can pick or choose one or the other. Uh, these are a package deal. They aren't one or the other. These three things are all coming together. And so if one of them is not happening, the other two aren't happening yet either. Because notice in the text, both verse 10 and verse 11 say, In that day, Verse 10, in that day, in the day of the new creation that this king from the line of David brings is the same that day of verse 11 when God accomplishes this new exodus of saving his people. Isaiah 35 that we just read a little bit earlier, it does the same thing. It links these two things together, the new creation and the new exodus to tell us that they are the same thing, that this is all coming together, that these promises are all or nothing. But when the people come back into the land out of exile in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they don't have a king from the line of David ruling over them. They're still enslaved to other nations, even though they're back in their own land, and the new creation is not happening either. And so even if it might look like it at first glance, because they're coming out of exile, these promises are not fulfilled, and we close the Old Testament still waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Uh, We're going to preach through two or three of the minor prophets uh, later on this summer in 2023, and so I'll remind you of this again when we get there then, Uh, but I just want to give you a crash course now and show you this is how you should read the prophets. When they make all of these great promises about how God's going to save his people again, and he's going to bring a new exodus and a new temple and a new creation, uh, you compare that to Ezra and Nehemiah, and you realize when the Old Testament closes its pages, that these promises still haven't happened yet, that they still have not been fulfilled. Because here's what God is doing with these promises. I've used this from G.K. Beale before, but imagine you've got a dad who's got a son who turns eight years old uh, in 1903. And so when his son is eight years old, his dad tells him, son, when you turn 18, I'm going to get you your very own horse-drawn carriage like I have uh, so that you can have a means of transportation and you can get around. Well, In those years in between 1903 and 1913, when this son would have turned 18, what happens? Well, the Model T Ford gets invented in 1908. And so imagine, instead of a horse-drawn carriage, when this son turns 18 in 1913, his dad instead gives him a brand new Model T Ford. If his dad did that, would you say that his dad went back on his promise or failed to fulfill his promise to his son? No, of course not, right? Like, he went above and beyond uh, and gave him an even greater means of transportation than the son could have even imagined. That's what's going on with these promises. With these Old Testament promises, God is giving us promises in language, in categories, in concepts that we can understand if we've read our Old Testament He's drawing on previous acts of creation and salvation to show us what this great act of salvation and new creation is going to look like, but when he fulfills it, he goes above and beyond the original promise because while this promise of a new David and a new creation and a new exodus is not fulfilled in the Old Testament, it is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the king from the line of David that's promised here in Isaiah 11. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist says that he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and remain on Jesus, just like Isaiah 11 said that the Spirit would. In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus goes up on the mountain, he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Uh, Moses and Elijah appear with him, and it says that Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem, but the word in Greek is not departure, it's exodus. Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about the exodus that he is going to accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross. The cross is where the true exodus happens, it's where this promise from Isaiah 11 is fulfilled, and it's how this promise is fulfilled in even greater measure, how God goes above and beyond, because God doesn't just deliver us from our external, outside enemies, he delivers us from our greatest enemy, the sin and death that lies in our hearts. You see, we were in a much deeper slavery to sin than the Israelites ever were to Egypt, and Jesus sets us free. He brings us from death to life, from darkness to light, from uh, slavery to freedom. His cross and resurrection accomplishes this new exodus. And so when you read the story of Exodus and when you read the prophets, you don't just need to think, man, this is a really cool uh, historical lesson about something that God did one time. No, you need to see this is my story. This is what Jesus has done to save me. This is what Jesus has done to set me free. I am not a slave to my sin anymore. I am where God has and is fulfilling these promises. And look, I, I know we read this promise of a new creation here in Isaiah 11, and we're like, man, this sounds so cool. I can't wait for God to bring this about one day. But once again, that's not how this works, these are a package deal. If the true king is here and the new exodus has happened, so has the new creation. And once again, good news, the New Testament tells us that it has. How do we know this new creation is happening? The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that this new creation really is breaking in. He is the first fruits of The new creation and his resurrection is the proof that this new world of life and righteousness has broken in and is even now overcoming our old world of sin and death that even right now Jesus is making all things new. And if you don't believe me that this new creation has already broken in, here's what the gospel tells us. Another proof that this new creation is here is us. That in Jesus, we are experiencing the beginnings of this new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is what? A new creation. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 says that the same God who in the first act of creation said, let light shine out of darkness, has now shown in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know that this new creation is happening because Jesus is doing it in us right now at this very moment. Look, when we moved into uh, our new house a few years ago, you could tell that they had flipped the house because uh, it had been bought for real cheap, like eight or so months before uh, we ended up buying it. And so uh, they bought it, this, this company kind of bought it and flipped the inside, they put in. Uh, New floors and appliances and bathtubs and countertops, uh, kind of a whole nine yards. And so, man, when we moved in, like, everything looked brand new, and it looked really great. But as we got kind of more settled into the house, we started to notice places where they had cut some corners in the name of saving some money. Uh, pretty quickly after we moved in, we ended up having to get electrical work done because the contractor uh, had wired the electrical work wrong. The, the people that came in, uh, in their words, said, whoever did this is a bunch of clowns. Uh, and listen, if you are the contractor that did that, I'm sorry. I'm not the one that's calling you that. Uh, they were calling you that. We saw other places where, uh, like one of the showers had, had stuff that was chipping off and they just kind of covered over it. Uh, we saw places where instead of fixing something that needed to be fixed and made new, they just kind of painted over it or covered over it and just hoped that we wouldn't notice and we wouldn't look too close. And I think that for a lot of us, that's more of what we think Christianity is like. Jesus comes into your life and He paints over some things, you know, he might make you a little bit nicer, he might help you get a little bit more religious, he might help you look like you've got your life a little bit more put together and clean some things up, but you still don't want people to look too close because if they got too close, uh, they would see that you aren't really new, That, that it's really a facade that's hiding underneath that you haven't really been changed. Well, that's not the gospel that Christmas proclaims to us the hope of the gospel that Christmas proclaims to us is new creation. Christmas means that salvation is new creation. It is not your best attempts to save yourself. And it is not Jesus painting over some holes and dark spots in your life. The message of Christmas is not Jesus has come, so good news, now you can look a little bit more respectable. The message of Christmas is not Jesus has come, so now you can try to to work hard with his help to become a little bit better of a person. And it's not Jesus has come, so come to Jesus, and he will paint over some things in your life, and you can look to people like you've got your life together when really you're rotting away on the inside. No, the message of Christmas is to those who are sinners, who cannot be good enough, who have made an absolute wreck of their lives, Jesus can give you a brand new life, that all of your sin could be forgiven, that your shame and your guilt could be completely removed, that you could know the freedom of life with God, and that you can walk in the power of new creation, like Jesus actually remaking you and making you new from the inside out. Because Christmas is not about painting over your mess, Christmas is about the power of new creation breaking into your life. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the hope of Christmas that we're proclaiming to you. It's the hope of new creation. We are not saying Jesus can improve your life, help you be a little bit more religious of a person. We're saying Jesus has the power to absolutely change your life and get you out of the darkness. That you don't have to be stuck in the sins that you're stuck in any longer. This that's what makes this hope so wild that this promise of new creation is not just something we're looking for in the future. It's already being fulfilled right now in those of us who trust in Jesus. He is making us new creations. And look, we know this is true because we've seen this. We've seen Jesus work this new creation in life in people among us here at Veritas, we've seen marriages restored. We've seen families healed. We've seen people set free from addictions. We have seen people's lives totally change because Jesus is still right now working this power of new creation life in us. And so if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can get in on this. Like If you want this, if you want Jesus, he will have you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the good news is that if you want more of this new creation work in your life, The Bible also tells us how this comes about as well. Now, I want to be clear. This is not like a mechanical overnight process. This is the slow work of God growing us. But 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 says that as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Spirit transforms us from one degree of glory to the next so that we might look more like Jesus. So as we stare at the glory of Jesus, the Spirit more and more makes us look like Jesus. And so if you want more of this new creation at work in your life and get your eyes and your heart and your mind on Jesus, stare at the glory of Jesus until the spirit begins to make you look more like him. Because again, this is the hope. not that your life might get a nice little touch-up on the outside, but that you could actually really be experienced being recreated from the inside out. That you don't have to be the same person that you've been. That the sin that might have characterized your story up to this point doesn't have to characterize your story any longer. That as we wait for the second advent of Jesus, when he will return and he'll finish this work of new creation and making all things new, we get to experience the first fruits of that work in our lives right now. So my encouragement to you is don't settle. Don't settle for just kind of a religious existence and stacking up more religious activity. Come experience real life, real new creation life with Jesus. Let me pray that we would, that we'd step into that. Jesus, help us to do that. Help us to come to you and experience real new creation life. Help us to believe your promise that the good news of Christmas is not that we can get a little bit more religious activity on our calendars, but that you could actually change our lives. Thank you for the ways that you have done this and so many of us here in this room. Thank you for the ways that you've made so many of us completely new the gospel work of how you've brought healing and restoration to so many in this room. God, would you continue to do so among us? Would you continue to work this work of new creation in and through our lives? Would you increasingly set us free from the sins that we've enslaved ourselves to? Would you help us to do so? I pray that you would, in your name, amen.